This is Color Speak, unveiling truth for light. Hi, I'm your host, Janet Huxley, author J.M. Huxley. Welcome to this podcast to unveil truth and uplift you. Light is where you'll find truth. Truth is where you'll find color. Color is where you'll find God. Color is God. It's His love for you. We know light is what makes color happen. Color is a product of light. So if God is light, that means color testifies. Have you ever thought of color this way? Color celebrates what God has done from the beginning and what he's still doing. Color cheers us on. We may not see color function in the shadows, but that doesn't mean it isn't available for us there. All it needs is a little light to start vibrating and shifting. And when a light hits an object, it causes it to rearrange its electrons in a process called transition. In short, it causes color to be seen. Color is all about perspective. It's about getting what is between our two ears just right. Because when we operate in what is possible versus what is impossible through faith, we channel the power of the God of the universe. Difficult circumstances are meant to be overcome, my friends. And just you wait until you hear from Chrissy today. Chrissy Meyer spent years believing a cleft lip and palate being the shortest kid in the class and a learning disability were holding her back. But the opposite was true. They taught her that what makes us different is really the foundation for understanding our superpowers. Now, Chrissy is an author, coach, and speaker who empowers individuals and organizations to turn obstacles into opportunities and to understand their beauty, purpose, and power. Chrissy was born with a cleft lip and palate and has had over 25 surgeries. In elementary school, she was classified as learning disabled. Despite that, she's the author of the award-winning books, Blue Sky Morning and The Too Tall Giraffe. After being tired of hearing stories of what she couldn't achieve and beating the odds, Chrissy is now passionate about guiding you through changing your thinking and reigniting your passion. That is the coolest thing when I think about it. And I am so excited. Chrissy, there's so much more she's done and so much more empowering to talk about. But let me just go ahead now and welcome Chrissy to the show. Hi. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. So I told you this is going to be so organic because I have followed you for years and I've loved what you've said. I've loved your books and the visuals and all of that, but I don't, I don't really know your story. And so I get to hear it really like for the first time with everyone else today, with the listeners who are turning in. So let's start at the beginning. What else would you like us to know? Well, you know, as you said, I was born through cleft lip and palate and I had all of these surgeries and I think I, you know, I went through life pretty well. I had a very supportive and loving family. And, you know, I, I really, I think I thought everything was kind of, that was normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everybody else doesn't have surgeries. Um, and it wasn't until I was actually um, an adult in probably my 30s that I realized that there was a lot of other people who are born with cleft lip and palate who did not have as good of an experience as I did. And there were, we'll say, less loving environments mm. that they were in. And Sounds it, like you had great parents. I, I did. And yeah. I still do. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Um, but it really opens eyes to how we can all have, you know, experiences that we think are great or we think are, are terrible and somebody else can have a similar one and have the complete opposite feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what, what I got out of my own story and really was a big moment of transformation and maturation for me. So, so it sounds like that's what motivated you to write these books. That was your catalyst, was your response to a situation you saw others responding to differently. Yeah, I really, I just, I I wanted to give people hope that, you know, things are better than they sometimes feel like they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe give myself that own hope once in a while, too. Wow, that's awesome. Well, and before we get into the nitty gritty of all of that, I wanted to also point out that you are quite accomplished. You have a bachelor's degree from the Pennsylvania State University. And that is just a really nice school. I know I went to school in Philadelphia. So I'm very well aware of Penn. And then you have a master's degree from the University of Albany. And then you worked for the NYPD. And you were a policy analyst, an instructor in the police academy, a 911 rescuer. And you retired in the rank of sergeant. And I love this part too. You were the first female director of watch command. So fill us in where to start. You are quite the accomplished woman. Um, yeah, I don't even know where to start <laughs> with that. And I keep saying I'm going to write a memoir about my experience in the police department. And I just haven't found the time for it yet, but I will. Oh, I hope you um, do. Yeah. So, I mean, I joined the police department and I will tell you that, you know, the NYPD is very, um, very diverse in terms of, you know, nationalities, genders, race, all that stuff. So I never felt like super ostracized or anything like that for being a woman. There were certainly, you know, some moments that I don't even think people were aware of. Um, you know, it's just that, that sort of subconscious bias that, you know, you often hear about. Mm-hmm. And, but there was no like, oh, Christy can't do anything. Right. <laughs> because, she's, you know, there's nothing like that. And, you know, oftentimes I actually felt very welcomed in the police department around, you know, the men who really wanted the best for me, you know, just as another fellow officer. Right. And I, I took our sergeant's test. I got promoted and I ended up working in the Office of Emergency Management, which is a different agency within New York City. So it was sort of, I was like on loan. So I sort of worked for the police department and sort of worked for this other agency. It was was a unique circumstance. But after a couple of years there, I applied to be the deputy director of my unit, which is Watch Command. And even the women that I worked with were like, oh, you'll never get it because you're a woman. Oh, dear. And and I was just like, I, I never, I never felt like that in, in the police department. Like nobody was saying that even if, even the people who felt like there were, you know, some, you know, um, even the women who felt like women weren't as well respected would never outright say something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was never as obvious. So it was sort of a weird situation. I was just like, but I've done all of this stuff. I've accomplished all this stuff. Why wouldn't I get this job? And I did. 
Um, and a lot of that had to do with just my work ethic and the the work I had done previously that showed that I had the experience to take on this role. But I think, you know, you can see some women and some men who see like a gender and automatically think you're disqualified from something because of past experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I, I mean, I years ago, I think I started, I think, oh, goodness, it was in the media in 1989. And I didn't feel that, to be honest, because we were already coming out of this era of Walter Cronkite thinking and everything had to be male and deep and forceful. And there was a new way to tell a story. So I never felt that. So I felt very very much um, benefited by the new way of thinking. Of course, that was in California. But I also understood an underlying tension that I just, I refuse to be aware of, if that makes sense. So though it may certainly exist for some people, it sounds to me like your mindset was one where you were already predisposed to thinking otherwise. So that allowed you the momentum forward to move forward. Yeah. And, you know, you see it a lot of times with all sorts of things in in life and in work where people see something that they want to achieve and make excuses on why they can't achieve it. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's gender, whether it's race, um, whether it's age, skills or abilities, if they really want something and they're afraid they're going to get rejected, it's much easier to reject it yourself in your head and say, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm not this, so I won't get it. And then they don't feel hurt right. if they don't get it, but they also don't get that moment of joy when they do get it. Yeah. And well, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking that's true of relationships too. <laughs> How many yeah. times have I counseled young people through those scenarios? I'll tell you a lot, a lot of young people in my life and I've been a teacher and led youth groups. So, uh, yeah, that resonates. So, so getting back to your situation as a kid and what made you write these books, let's start. Which one did you write first? Was it Blue Sky Morning or The Too Tall Giraffe? Well, The Too Tall Giraffe, I actually wrote in high school as a an, an English elective assignment. Nice. And, <laughs> and I I left it at school when I graduated. And I always wished I'd asked for it back. Uh, And so fast forward a bunch of years and I wrote Blue Sky Morning. And then after I kept thinking about this book that I'd written in high school. And I said, well, I'm a published author. Why don't I rewrite it? mm -hmm. And then I'll have it forever. And it'll be out in the world and I can share it with people. So I did The Too Tall Giraffe, you know, formally after Blue Sky Morning. Okay. So are they both kids' books? No. Blue Sky Morning is really, I, I, I say, I always refer to it as an adult book, but it's not like inappropriate for teenagers. I know plenty of teenagers who have read it, um, but it's the audience is more like a 20 something woman. And that is about a woman who kind of has it, everything going for her in life and tragedy strikes and she just can't get herself back together. Um, So she decides to take some money 
and go travel around the world. And it is a journey about her rediscovering herself. How did you come up with the idea? I think it was a little bit of like the dream trip I always wanted to take for myself. And this idea that, you know, I was born to Cleflin palate. i had had all these surgeries. Like if you told me I had to have surgery tomorrow, I'd be like, all right, when, when do I need to be in? Hmm. <laughs> and when, when do I stop eating tonight? But I wanted to write the perspective of somebody who had never had that type of experience and all of a sudden has, you know, all this trauma that they go through and how do they recover from it? And that was the perspective I wanted to write from. So did you draw on your own experiences then? Was it sort of autobiographical in nature or was it something you endeavored to do outside of your own understanding? It was a mix of both. Um, Some of the things that are in there are alterations of events that actually happened to me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might have had an experience and I wrote about it in a different time and place and tried to bring out those same feelings. And some of them were completely made up, Mm -hmm. Uh, but tried to pull on my own, you know, past experience and experiences that other people had shared with me. Yeah, that's so interesting. And the reason I ask that is, so I went to journalism school in the East, uh, in Philadelphia at Temple. And one of the electives I took was short story writing. And the funny thing is, I wasn't even interested remotely in short story writing. But I look back on that class, and I think that is seriously one of the most pivotal classes of my life. It's certainly one of the most informative that I ever took, because the teacher was a published author. And she, I think she may not even be doing that anymore because I looked her name up, couldn't find her. But she was always friends with uh, and talked a lot about some of the other big name New York Times bestselling authors she was friends with. And her perspective was, and I've always thought this is true, truth is stranger than fiction. (laughs) So you you can take, she would in class, she would say things like, I'm going to write about you. Oh my goodness. Somebody would make a comment. She'd say, oh my goodness, you're my next character. I love that. (laughs) And um, it really got me thinking about the world around me and understanding that I don't necessarily have to have an imagination that is wild because real life is wild. (laughs) And so I can take and build on some of those things that I've seen in life and then tweak them. And and that's why I asked, because I think those make for the best stories because you can't make that stuff up. It's just, it's crazy. But I also understand that there is, whether you're writing about someone who doesn't have a cleft palate or didn't, and you did, there is a challenge in writing to try to to come out of that box and write something that is foreign. And I laud that. That is awesome. You were able to do that. It is, it is an interesting process. And um, yeah, I've done it myself. Just really worked hard to get out of my comfort zone and write about something I wasn't familiar with. Yeah. And I really, for me, it allowed me to get out of my own story and start to find the universal truths from my story that other people can apply to their own lives. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to write it in fiction because I wanted to people to be able to suspend disbelief. And I wanted them to get out of their own lives and just see how somebody else sort of walks through this journey in a way that's not telling them how to walk the journey. 
Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're like, oh, here's like the five things you do to recover. Yeah. And and then it's like, <laughs> I'm really not good at one, but I did really well with two. And oh, I'm never going to get this. You know, like, I think it can be very overwhelming. And so I think sometimes you just have to see it and live it to do it. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think points work for some people, but I think bullet points aren't always helpful. They can be restrictive. And I don't, I tend to not think that way. I know one of the most glaring reasons for that was I had a student early on in my, in my time teaching American and British literature to high schoolers who said, and when talking about the MLA, the modern language format, um, how she should have three bullet points to the point she was trying to make to her thesis. And I thought, well, what if you have less? What if you have more? <laughs> why, why keep them to three? It's like, it's like that old, you know, 1980s way of teaching stand up speech communication, come up with three reasons why you're going to say something, say them and then repeat those three reasons at the end. Well, what if there are more reasons? I don't know. What if yeah. there's one and it's so impactful, you don't need the other two. I don't know. Just a thought. But yeah, I, I appreciate that some people feel like they need to create those points. And I do think that there are times where that's helpful. But I understand, too, that sometimes eh, maybe better not to. Yeah, I, I agree. Sometimes you're just you're like, oh, I need another bullet point, And you're making up something that is not helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. to, just to build some, you know, some checklist of how to write. Exactly. Like a format. Yeah, exactly. Well, I love your your titles are amazing. Blue Sky Morning. Love that. And then The Too Tall Giraffe. Tell me about that because I've seen some really cute photos online. You have one where a giraffe, you have your book pictured next to a real giraffe who looks like is reaching for the book. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, The Too Tall Giraffe is about looking different, fitting in and finding your superpower. And when I think back to that time when I would have written it, um, I was in high school. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that I was learning disabled. And in particular, it was in the area of reading comprehension. And in high school, one of my friends basically forced me to read a romance novel. And I, I hated to read. It was <laughs> When I say forced, I was like, fine, I'll just do it to shut you up. And I fell in love with reading. And so... I can't help but think that this book was written in large part about this idea that I can't read, I don't want to read, and also being learning disabled and not necessarily being the cool kid in school, and sort of how reading sort of brought me out of that. And I think that's, you know, a big part of this story. So it cured you, essentially, reading. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> Since it's one of my favorite things to do, and I'm always trying to encourage my kids and now my grandchildren to read, which is which is really great. I I took them to the library yesterday, and I don't know if you, I'm sure you were this way too. For me, the library is better than Disney World. <laughs> it's it is so wonderful, and we have a new one here, and there's a wall that has bubbles that go up and down, and another where they can touch things. I mean, it's just it's just delightful, and. Being in that place, it just took me back to when I was a kid and I would have my summer challenges for reading, you know, when you would get prizes and 
So we were at the library yesterday with uh, four of my grandkids and my oldest is going to be eight in October. And he ran into his teacher there and she said, he is a great writer or great reader. And she said, have you seen his writing? And I said, I haven't. I mean, just in snippets. She said, oh, he's really good at that too. And it just made me so happy because I haven't beaten him over the head with books. I've just always said, reading's the best. You you need to do it. (laughs) It's exciting to see when people have that passion. Yeah. And I I wish I had had it earlier, but it, it was such a chore for me, you know, when I was younger that it was a chore. So it wasn't fun. And I finally had to find the way for reading to be fun for me. Mm-hmm. And now that it is, I'm reading all the time. Because you, you like know. to learn. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's there's a program called Sunlight and I homeschooled my kids and it's nothing but literature based. And then they incorporate other curriculum for math and science. But basically the whole thing hinges on every grade level reading books. So the kids spend the entire year reading like crazy because in literature, you find so many of life's answers and so much redemption. You find information about other cultures and people and the way they live their lives. And yeah, it's just so exciting. Wow. So now you're coaching other people. Tell me about that. How does that look? So I have, um, I should say, well, I, I do. And I've been helping people actually do publishing their books, which has been really fun. Oh, nice. Because it's not just about like, how do I get my book on Amazon? It's about how do I take the message of my book out into the world? Because, you know, what you put on Amazon is, you know, that base of your book. And it's, you know, that hook that tells people how they're, how the book is going to help them, the, how the book will help the reader. And so I've been doing a lot of that, which has been really fun because you're also just talking with people and hearing about, you know, what obstacles they're having. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, it's technology. For other people, it's like, how do I market my book? And not just marketing, like to get out of their head that how do I sell my book, but how do I get my book into people's hands in a way that's meaningful? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have all sorts of, um, I don't want to say obstacles again, but they have all sorts of little barriers in their mind. Like my book's not good enough. Um, people don't want to read it. They're sh- afraid to share their story because it's very vulnerable mm-hmm. And so it's really been fun to help people sort of get past those um, those things in their head. And I also do some coaching. I have a program called Label Breakers, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's about, you know, these labels that we have that hold us back. Yeah. And, you know, it could be as simple as being a mom or being a husband or being a police officer, like very normal words that we use in everyday life, but sometimes box people into thinking that they have to be a certain way. Yeah. And sometimes they're like, they love being a mom, but they also love being, you know, a writer or an activist or, you know, all these other things that they want to do, but they feel like, but I'm a mom. That's my first priority. Yeah. Right. Well, and I love I love your titles. Again, Label Breakers is awesome. 
And just circling back around to what you were saying about helping people write their books, I do think vulnerability is probably the biggest issue because it does seem a really scary place, a really open, wide, exposed place to write your story. And I think that's true for nonfiction and fiction. And I think we battle, you know, the worst enemy is ourselves and our heads between what goes on in between our ears. And we also have a very real enemy that is coming against us with all of the reasons why we shouldn't do what we're doing. Of course, it feels scary. Getting beyond that and having someone to coach us on and cheer us on is really nice. I I didn't even realize you were helping people write your stories. And I'm sort of chuckling over here because I'm thinking, yeah, from someone who was told she was learning disabled and pushed through that label. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So what was it? What is your biggest secret, Chrissy? What What is it that enabled you to take all the things you were going through, the surgeries and the labels of being learning disabled and what have you, wh- what was it? What's your secret? What did you use to empower you beyond all of that? I think one thing was just having that really supportive and loving family, mm-hmm. I, I think is a piece. And you know, not everybody has that and you don't need that, but anything that you can u- use to help you, whether it's good friends a good family, a good work environment, whatever you can pull to energize you and make you feel positive, pull that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's never discount that. But the other thing is I, I always remember this time in third grade, I was, you know, we were playing kickball during, you know, recess or gym class and doing the typical schoolyard pick where like biggest, most popular kids get picked first. And the little scorny Chrissy is like one of the last kids picked. <laughs> yeah, that was me too. Yeah. So, and you're like standing there on that line going, don't let me be last. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I don't, I know I'm not getting picked in the beginning, but don't let me be last. And so I get picked and I'm like probably second or third from, from last. And my turn at back comes and, you know, I would either do like kind of like a, a strong, a strong, a weak kick that went towards, you know, the middle of the field and run and I'd get thrown out or I would do a bunt and I'd have the catcher throw the ball and hit me and Aww. I'd never make it to first base. That, that, that was sounds like, like me again. <laughs> yes. So, so then one day, this day, um, I come up at bat and I kick the ball and it's not quite a bunt and it's not quite you know, into the field is like pretty much straight to the pitcher. And I start running and I feel the ball go flying over my head and into the fence. Oh. And everybody starts cheering and I start running really fast. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm actually, <laughs> I have a chance. <laughs> and so I get to first base and everybody cheers. And in that moment, I knew that the reason was because I was this like short kid that was too hard to hit. And I think that moment has always been a guiding light for me where whenever somebody tells me I can't do something, whenever I feel like I'm not enough, I feel like there's always, there's this other side to it where I can find my way around that problem. In that case, it was me being too short (laughs) and the pitcher throwing too high. But that little bit of height difference was the difference that day. Mm -hmm. 
And I think most of us have a moment where we had something that we didn't think we could achieve. And through the set of circumstances, we did. And those are the moments that we need to look at and see what was different in there and how can we leverage it. Well, I'm already dwelling on what you said earlier, that a lot of times we pull ourselves out of the race so as not to be hurt. And as I'm thinking about what you're telling me and my own experience on the playground and through my childhood, I did that. I couldn't even stand the excruciating process of being chosen last. I would take myself right on out. I mean, I was extricated. I wasn't even going to try to play if it was extracurricular because I knew I wouldn't be chosen and I couldn't bear the mortification of performing badly and I couldn't bear the humiliation of not being chosen. So I didn't get up to bat a lot. I didn't play a lot of those games. I was off on the monkey bars and playground bullies didn't help that either. <laughs> so, I was, right. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. It's wonderful when you can feel empowered to get beyond all that stuff. And, you know, that's, that's what the impetus of this is about here is just empowering everyone to move beyond. And a lot of that is just just having the faith, having, having faith in a God who actually loves us and cares for us. And I know that's really difficult for people. Some people have a really hard time grappling with that because they weigh him against all of the humans they've borne witness to. Well, how could a God be so loving when this is the way things look? Wouldn't he intervene? Wouldn't he do more to illustrate his presence? Wouldn't there be more good? All of those things. But when we can rise above and be empowered into a place that he would have us be, that's 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 a great place and very exciting. So let me ask you, Chrissy, do, how, how do you know God is real? So a few years ago, and you know, I, I told you, I, I, I was born, I was born and raised Catholic. I'm not an ultra, ultra religious person, but I do believe in God. And, you know, I've had my moments in life where I sort of questioned it, but ultimately it comes down to there's one day I was doing a program called Your Secret Name. And there's a story in it about Jacob and Esau. And, And I'm sure many of your listeners probably know the story and probably tell it much better than I can. So I will spare my butchering of that story. Oh, I think you'd do a fine (laughs) job. It's just a little strange, that story. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And but at the end of the story, um, Jacob is fighting with God. And as in, in this program, in this coaching program, you're you're going through you're going through the story and you have this fight um, between Jacob and God. And at, after you're reading or listening to the story, you're supposed to go write like um, your own psalm to God, like sort of like all the things that you're angry about. Hmm. And as I'm reading the story, my arm starts to hurt. And I, I do get pain in my arm, but I hadn't had it like that day or in the last few days. It just randomly popped up. And to the point where I could barely hold my arm up, let alone write anything down for this psalm. Oh, no. Was it your right arm? Yeah, it was my right arm. And I I just, and I got really tired. I'm like, you know, I'm going to go to bed. And I'm just, I 
jotted down like a couple like words on on, the, on my paper and went and laid down and went to sleep. And I just sort of did this exercise mentally because I couldn't do it physically. And I fell asleep and then I woke up around at at exactly 3.33 in the morning. And something said, look at the clock. And so I rolled over. I looked at the clock. It's 3.33. And I'm like, okay. And I fell back to sleep. And I woke up a little while later. And I said, that was really weird. <laughs> and so now at like 4.30 in the morning, I'm like, you know, searching numerology to find out what, what does 3.33 mean? And it there's a lot of different meanings for it, but they're all very, very similar. And when you go into um, religious meanings, it means that God is with you on your journey. Mm-hmm. And I knew in that moment that that was God telling me that I was on the right track and that he was there with me as I go through this journey. And and that, that was it. I was like, okay, I get it. I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to mess up, but I'm on the right track and God is going to bring me the tools that I need. I just have to be the one to take them and use them. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I feel much lighter about my journey. Even when I have struggles and um, we all have them. I just keep going, no, God is with me. And things always seem to turn out right. Yeah. In the end. Well, and I love I love stories like that because most often that's how he operates. He is that whisper on the wind. He's not in the earthquake or the fire or the the big thing, right? The lightning bolt moment. He is in those little whispers where he shows you something and you just know that you know, and it's not a coincidence. And interestingly, I think because so many of us, in fact, I don't think there's a person that hasn't been absolutely brought to his or her knees in the last couple of years with all of the things that have happened, so much anguish, so much trauma, so much suffering, so much frustration. And I think we all just need a little encouragement. And I've been talking to people about that very thing. I've not ever had those experiences until recently. And I'm telling you what, Chrissy, almost every time I look at the clock where I get this, look at the clock, it is 333111. In fact, I started talking to you today when I finally looked at the clock to note what time we started. It was 1111 and 555 and all of the things, 444. And it's just, it's really interesting. And so I too have gotten to Google lately because I had finally thought, what is going on with all these numbers? What is happening? (laughs) Is it, you know, is it a message from my guardian angel? You know, what's happening? I know I need a lot of encouragement right now. And so I did, I Googled biblical meaning of, you know, this number or that. And it's exactly like you said. And I got up one morning, I couldn't sleep and I came to sit down at my desk and I thought, is this stuff for real, God? Is it real for real? And I thought, okay, I wonder what time it is. Pick up my phone. It's 5.55 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and now it's getting to a point where it's happening so much. I'm saying it to my kids like, oh, gosh, it's 333. It's 2.22. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but I had this I had this pivotal moment. Uh, I don't think I've really ever shared. I I was a single mom. I was transferred from San Diego here to Kansas City. And 
I had four kids and found myself pregnant with a fifth through a relationship that didn't work out because that person was not into kids and didn't want kids. And I determined to have my fifth child. And here I was working in the media here and uh, was really having to hold my head high here in Kansas City. Yeah, I'm pregnant with my fifth. I'm a single mom. I've got four kids. This is the way it is. So I remember just being on the floor of my my room, I had gotten everyone to sleep. And I honestly wasn't really a believer at that point and just started crying out to God. Okay, if you are there, you need to help me because the pain that I feel right now is so severe. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I pray, Lord, that you never allow this kind of pain to happen to any of my kids. And as I, as I heard his, I just, I heard this voice say, I'm sending a father to them, but he's not here. He's not here in Kansas City yet. He's on his way. I'm sending a father to him. You do not have to worry. You're going to have a partner in life to do this with. And I spoke to a friend of mine who was working at one of the radio stations here locally, and she had one child and was divorced. And she said, yeah, I I can't believe that. <laughs> she said, I can't, I can't believe that. And I can't believe that for myself. She says, nobody wants to deal with this. Nobody wants to deal with someone else's kid. Uh, I can't get men to date me. And I have one. And believe me, believe me, she was a beautiful woman. And I said, well, that's amazing. But I, I just believe, I believe what I heard. I, I believe that this is going to happen. Well, it turned out that it absolutely happened. Because I want to say like, a, well, let's see, it would have been right after I had a young baby. I had my fifth baby when I met my husband. And he hadn't been in Kansas City at the time. He was moving here. And I met him when she was six months old. And he adopted her and married us all. And the rest has been just delightful. We have his, mine and ours. We have eight children together. And that has always been such an incredible, poignant moment when I think back on it. And yet I just, when I think to my mind as I'm dredging up miracles, okay, well, do you have a miracle you want me to talk about, God? That one came to me today because, and it fits so perfectly with, with what you're saying, you know, the mindset, like, okay, I, I hear what reality is. Listen, I know how well I know that men don't want to deal with their kids I didn't have anybody that was willing to deal with their kids until I married my husband, Kevin. And so I understand very pragmatically why you would think that. But whatever it is, I think we need to get beyond that mindset and know that things are possible. <laughs> the battles we wage between our ears shouldn't yeah. set us back. <laughs> no, no. And that's, you know what? Lots of men don't want to. You just need to find the one that does. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and look at you. I, uh, you're a terrific speaker. You've been through so much. You're helping, you're helping the world one person at a time. And I love that you're assisting people with their stories, their books. What else would you have our listeners hear today or know today? Um, I think, I think the, the, I don't want to say the new thing I'm working on because I've been working on it for, for a while, but really diving much deeper into the cleft lip and palate community. Um, this week I'm, I'm going out to Chicago for CleftCon, which is uh, with Smile Train Aww. because there is, there's still as much as we have great health insurance in this country and we have great um, medical just in general, there's still a long way to go with this that, will really impact the lives of each and every person who has a cleft lip and palate and other craniofacial conditions. 
there's there's still much work to be done and that's that's where I will be spending a lot of my time in the next uh, few months and years. Oh, I know that God had that in mind from you for you from the beginning. And I'm just I'm smiling myself. Tell me how, what what are the stats on that? Is this something that is prevalent in this country or is it elsewhere or I'm guessing it's a big problem. It is. It is the uh, one of the most common birth defects in the world. Mm-hmm. It has it's the same instance as Down syndrome. To put it in perspective of you know another, um, I don't um, another I don't want to say illness. I, I'm going to use the wrong word, but also another condition right. that that a lot of people are aware of. And um, there are there are some slight differences between races in number of incidents. Like it's a little more common with within Asian societies, and like Southeast Asia is a little bit higher than um, Black and African Americans, mm-hmm. and also Africa. But it's not um, significantly different. Um, just like some slight differences, and it is um, there's no known cause. There are some genetic factors, but those are um, a small percentage of them. Mm-hmm. But the actual cause of it, we don't know. We just, we know some things that can, you know, like taking folic acid can reduce right. your chance of Actually, having a child. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I'd heard that. That was my next question. Okay. But yeah, but it, there's no, like, if you don't take folic acid, mm-hmm. you will, there's no, there's sure. no actual known cause. Yeah. There's just ways to reduce the incidence of it. Um, yeah, which is, you know, kind of crazy because this goes back to ancient times. You know, they think King Tut had a cleft palate. Oh, really? Huh. Yes. So, yeah, this has been going on for a long time. Sure. Um, there's been a lot of medical advances, but there's still, there's there's work to be done. Mm-hmm. I was always interested in King Tut. My parents, this is often into the weeds, but my parents took me to the King Tut exhibit when it came to Los Angeles back in the 70s. So I've been fascinated with Egyptian history ever since, essentially. And I know my kids, we have one mummy here at a one of our museums in Kansas City. And that's the thing the kids always want to see. <laughs> it's always so interesting. Well, very well good. I have to... So I have yeah, to tell you, I have been to in Egypt and I have been to King Tut's tomb and I have. went to see all the, his exhibit at the Egyptian museum. Wow. That is so amazing. It, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. You, like it's one thing to look at it in a book. It's another thing to be like, oh my God, here's the mask in front yeah. of me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it. I mean, I've seen some of it when it came through in the 70s, some of the artifacts, which left a lasting impression, obviously. But I've not I always dreamed of going out to the tomb and seeing those things. And boy, Tasha, you know, Tasha Madison, right? Uh, she has yeah. written some books on that. And she's fascinating. She's, she's very keen on all of that information. And it was it was good to talk with her here on the podcast, too. She's, she's written some terrific books relating to Egyptian history. So great. Well, I thank you so much for coming on our show today and encouraging people. And I just hope people get a chance to pick up the Too Tall Giraffe and Blue Sky. I don't have it in front of me all of a sudden. What is it? Blue Sky something. Morning. 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 How do I forget that? I love that. I'm sure I've used that terminology myself, but not in a 
in a title. It's just it just so resonates, especially on the big open plains of Kansas, where I like to talk about the colors here a lot. And Chrissy, you're an inspiration. Thank you so much for doing all that you do. Oh, I wanted to ask you, I know there was a question. Why did you leave the police force? Or why did you leave New York? Uh, well, I'm still in New York, although I'm in the suburbs. Okay. But I, I hit my 20 years. And I had the option to retire. And I felt like I had more to do with my life. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I, I it was it was time. And so here I am. Awesome. Well, the reason I asked, I was thinking is one of my very best friends in the world, Linda, she is, uh, she had been a police officer in San Diego, and recently moved back to New York City. So she's there now. All right. Well, thank you again, everyone. I hope that you will pick up Chrissy Meyer's book, The Too Tall Giraffe and Blue Sky Morning, and that you will check out her information, which I will have up on the show notes. I'll have all of the ways that you can connect with her. And I will be applauding you and cheering you on and praying for your success from the sidelines. It's just a pleasure to see Chrissy. Thank you. Wherever you find yourself today, remember you are relevant, you are influential, and you are called to your purpose. And that includes unveiling the truth for color, lighting the world with color, and sharing your color. I hope you'll continue to join us on Color Speak wherever you find your podcasts and on Grace and Truth Radio World. This is J.M. Huxley for Truth Talk on Color Speak, unveiling truth for color and light. 